footballers' lives. Life After Football is brought to you by the Phoenix Sport and Media Group. Presented and produced by Richard Lenton. Hello everyone, thanks for joining us. Now what happens when the hype and expectation thrust upon a young player fails to bear fruit? What happens when the goals dry up and you're sidelined, isolated with only increasingly negative thoughts for company? Michael Branch was hailed as Everton's answer to Robbie Fowler in the 1990s. He was a prodigiously talented teenager who really excelled at youth level for club and country. But after quitting the game at 27 and with financial pressures building, he was coerced into a short-term career as a drug dealer. Now, predictably, it ended in tears, and after being caught with 160 grand's worth of cocaine, he was staring down the barrel of a seven-year prison sentence. Now, remarkably, it proved to be a major turning point, and as you'll hear, Michael has successfully turned his life around after being released in 2016. Now, the sound quality, by the way, isn't great for the first couple of minutes of this interview, but bear with me. It does get better, apart from a short period later on where Michael's neighbour seems to be using a chainsaw, and my bloody cats also get involved as well. But apart from that, I'm sure you'll enjoy Life After Football with Michael Branch. Okay, Michael, good to see you. I, I wanted to start with your early footballing life. Uh, you joined the Everton Academy at the age of nine. You went to Lily Shaw. I've heard people like Jamie Carragher saying good things about you. But at, at what age did football change from being a game that you could just play for fun to being something that you really had to focus on and take very, very seriously? Uh, I mean, for a long time, it was still fun when I was younger. Uh, even when I was at Lily Shaw, it was fun. I don't think it got really serious until I joined Everton. Before that, it was it was fun, but the, there was pressure. But it was still still enjoyable enough at that time. Did you have your family trying to keep your feet on the ground, and people around you trying to keep your feet on the ground? Uh, yeah, well, obviously coming from Liverpool, uh, we don't brag about stuff too much. So yeah, my family were definitely keeping my feet on the ground. My dad was a pro at Liverpool for three years, so he sort of knew 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 how it worked, and he didn't make first team, so. He made sure I kept my feet on the ground and stayed focused. Yeah. And what about school teachers? Did, did you get the usual, well, you'll never make it as a footballer, so concentrate on your studies? Yeah, sort of. Uh, one of my PE teachers, he thought I'd be a better rugby player than footballer. So, but it was a bit too rough for me, that rugby. So, uh, I'd stick to the football. Yeah. We don't look, we're not built for, for rugby unless you were a bigger lad back then, Michael. No, I mean, I'm from Liverpool, geez. I'm, I'm from Wigan or Warrington up the road. But yeah, I think it was because I was so quick. You just weren't going to catch me, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> if you did, I was in trouble. <laughs> well, you were lightning quick and obviously scored loads of goals, particularly in your youth. I mean, were you able to take that hype that I was talking about in your stride? Were you quite a level headed lad? Yeah, I think so. Um, obviously, growing up in Liverpool, mum, dad, two sisters, we didn't have much. We just didn't have no car. I bought our first car when I signed my first contract at Everton. It's going to training, I'd have to get the bus and that. So I was always level headed, yeah. yeah. It never went to my head too much. <laughs> the most natural goal scorer to emerge from Everton's ranks for years. Now, this was in the Goodison Park programme, February 1996. You'd never even kicked a ball for the first team. Yeah. 
Wow, never been called a natural goal scorer, that's for sure. I must have missed that. <laughs> Obviously, you hadn't seen me play. But at that age, even though you were very much signed for Everton, did you have agents and other clubs sort of sniffing around, offering boots and money and things yes. to your parents? So, after the uh, last year of Lillishaw, so when we're leaving school and then joining our clubs, obviously, you've got all the clubs looking at us then. So, you had Liverpool, Man U. Chelsea, Tottenham, Everton. Um, looking back, maybe I should have. Maybe I went with my heart. Maybe my new had a better youth system than that, but I'm an Evertonian. I've always wanted to play for the club, so I was always going to go with Everton. What sort of things were these agents doing? Can you remember? Um, at that time, I'm not sure. My dad done all the negotiating. I just played the football. I just I know some money was offered here and there or job wise stuff, but I don't know uh, if anything did come about it. But it was all a waste anyway. It's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were an Everton fan, weren't you? And you must have looked up to players who were still in and around the club, the Neville Southalls, etc. What do you remember of that great team of the eighties? Or was that too early for you? It was a little bit early. I just remember watching them later on. Uh, I remember the cup finals against Liverpool hmm. when Russia break my heart. Because um, uh, my dad's a red as well, so it was always good banter in the house. So how did you become a blue then? So because they released my dad from Liverpool when he was a pro, so I didn't like, it, like them for that. So I had to inform them for that. And then uh, my granddad took me to my first Everton game. Okay. And what was that game? Do you remember it? I can't remember. <laughs> can't remember your first game of football. I will always remember Doncaster Rovers versus Hartlepool in 1981, Michael. It was a big yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> no, jeez. I couldn't remember that, that far back. I had too much going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine if you don't remember that, you'll remember your debut. We're, we're coming up to the 25th year anniversary. Manchester United, 17-year-old. You were on the bench. What do you remember of that day? Because I think Joe Royal was in charge, wasn't he? And I think we're the saying, should we give the kid a run? Yeah, uh, Joe Royal was manager. Uh, first thing I remember about it was obviously our old Trafford, 50-odd thousand. And I just remember like in the warm-up and then in the tunnel, just passing your cantonars and your Beckhams and your Giggses and Sharps. I was like, wow. But I wasn't there. I wasn't, uh, Nervous as I was still young, 17. I thought, give me a go, I'll uh, get up there and with no fear. So um, then I was on the bench, we were 2 0 down by the time I went on. I just remembered the gaffer saying to Anders Limpa, Should we throw the kid on? And Anders was like, Yeah, get him on. He's like, Get ready, kid, you're going on. And then that was it. So, uh, yeah, and then I just remember the first introduction was a ball down the line. So I was on a foot race now against Palestine. I'm thinking, I'm going to beat Palestine in a foot race. And he sort of stayed with me and then shoulder barged me. I must have ended up in the like, day of the stand. It was like, oh, welcome to the Premiership. <laughs> he was actually quite quick though, wasn't he? Gary he was quicker than I thought. Yeah, I thought I would have well left him by then. I was like, wow, he's kept up with me a little bit there. He did have a head start on me, but I thought I would have gone past him. <laughs> I'm going to go back and review the tapes on that one, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, which, sure which, which, which Everton players kind of took you under the wing or were you left to your own devices to sink or swim? 
No, so obviously Big Nev. Big Nev was a big one with uh, Bance and all that, but he had a big heart. He looked after me. Obviously, Duncan Ferguson. We roomed with Duncan a few times. Uh, Tony Grant, he was a bit older than me, but he was a young scouser as well. So, yeah, it was good. I mean, they, they were all brilliant. Craig Short, like we said. Uh, Joe Parkinson, I still speak to Joe now. So, they were all... They were a good bunch. They really were. Yeah. really looked after me. And what was the transition like from cleaning boots to suddenly being in the first team? And whose boots were you cleaning as well? So, I had to clean Dave Unsworth and Dave Watson's. Probably the two biggest feet in the club. <laughs> uh, so, one was club captain, obviously, and the captain of the team. So, I had to make sure this was spot on. But I only had to do it for a few months. And then uh, I moved over to the first team. Which was... Yeah, it was a bit because I wasn't with my mates then, but I mean, you can't argue if you want to play the first team. <laughs> not, not really, and not having no. to do those jobs. And I, no. I'm going to give you another quote now. After that first game, they said he has willingness, electrifying speed, an inherent natural ability, a quick silver striker blessed with control pace, and a knack of intelligent movement. So, is it true that Wayne Rooney had posters of you on his bedroom wall? I don't believe that. That's definitely not true. <laughs> but, again, no. but again, those expectations. I mean, that's huge for a 17-year-old. Brilliant words. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, at that time, everything's going good and I feel as though I can't do no wrong, you know what I mean? Scoring goals and for England and then getting the debut. Uh, but that expectations, once you don't start producing straight away, then, then they soon turn on you, for sure. And I was going to go into the kind of mental side of that as well, but let's. I wanted to talk about a game against Sheffield Wednesday. It was only a second start, and you had two legendary players of that era, Des Walker and Steve Nicol, playing at the back. Do you remember the game? Because, again, you got a lot of plaudits in those early matches. Yeah, yeah, I remember uh, Chef Ferry at the bar at the off Andy Inchcliffe free kick. Um, I remember putting, going past the cover, putting one across for Diamond, Graham Stewart to score. I enjoyed that game. I think that one was at Goodison. But um, yeah, that was not an easy game, but I enjoyed it. I don't think we were the quickest back then. No, until the end of the careers, I'm sure. Ed Walker and Steve Nicol, yeah. But yeah. it's still an achievement. And then there was the first goal at Stamford Bridge. So as an Everton fan. Under. Ferguson down. And Branch is there, his first goal for Everton. A big moment for the teenager. He's been planning those celebrations for such a long, long time. The celebration is a bit like the goal. It was pure instinct. And that was a kind of transitionary period for Chelsea as well. They were becoming a big club. Yeah, I mean, uh, scored my first goal. I think it ended 2-2, but uh, just to get my first goal for Everton, that was it. I was, like, delighted. Uh, I remember being on the pitch with uh, from. Zola and it was like he was unbelievable for Chelsea then I was like wow he's unbelievable yeah. and then the big French dude at the back I remember him smashing me the last 10 minutes so I had to go off injured in the end and I thought I'd like dummy ankle but uh, was it Leboeuf? I'm not sure his name. Frank Leboeuf yeah. Yeah yeah so uh, 
yeah, so remember limping back to Liverpool on crutches, but they couldn't care that scored. <laughs> and it, was it at this point where this Monica Everton's answer to Robbie Fowler suddenly came up? I remember for, at Manchester United for 20 odd years, any winger who showed a modicum of talent was the next George Best or the new George Best. And I suppose yeah. Everton in the 90s, it was all about an answer to Robbie Fowler. So when did you first hear, hear that? I think it was from early days, from like schoolboy level, because Robbie had, like, had all the records at schoolboy level and maybe I'd beat a couple of them or got close to them. and uh, Both from similar areas. Our parents knew each other, so it was just always going to be uh, us getting compared. Wasn't bad. It's not bad to be compared with Robbie. You know what I mean? Probably one of the, probably the best natural goal scorer that we've ever had. Hmm. So it was just that he scored more goals and was much better at it than me. But can you remember when that tag or when that weight of expectation started to become not just a bit of banter, but it started to become a bit of a burden? It was when I didn't start scoring regularly. Hmm. Uh, Slowly, it just started, little bits started in the media and all that. And then slowly the pressure got more. And the more the pressure got, the harder it was for me to deal with sort of thing. Mm. Um, and people think you've got everything going for you. You play football and you play for every first team. But if you're not scoring, you're supposed to be scoring. You're the pressure and you're not enjoying it then. And then the mental side of it, when you're in a, in a city like Liverpool, so everything's about football so the new local newspaper the radio you go out people everyone knows you it's like living in a goldfish bowl mm. and if it's not going well that goldfish bowl's really small yeah. and how, yeah. did that, how did that kind of stress and anxiety manifest itself for you personally was it sleeping issues were you were you not mixing the same it was sleeping issues it was self-doubt sort of get like an imposter syndrome thinking really are you really this good maybe you're not that good maybe you're an imposter and just your head and at the time there was no sports psychologist to go to or that it was just you didn't want to go and speak to the gaffer or that or any of your mates so it was just get on with it and as a young 17 18 year old you're like how am i going to deal with this and you don't deal with it right you just bottle it up and let it live rent free in your head <laughs> and is that just an indictment of how football was that you felt that you couldn't go and see a manager or someone about it because we did you think that you were showing a sign of weakness yeah i mean back then i think it would have i would have thought it was a sign of weakness now i think it's completely changed now you can go and speak to them or you've got people you can speak to in confidence counselors and psychologists but I mean I'm not I wasn't the only one at the time going through it there must have been hundreds of players going through it even the older pros and all that hmm. it's it's a uh, it's something that has and needs to be looked at all the time yeah. the mental health side of it yeah it's yeah. really interesting imposter syndrome is something this is I think this is the 18th podcast I've done, and that's at least three of you who've uttered those same words, imposter syndrome. Craig Short was another one as well. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's so fascinating, isn't it? And I think it's in, in every walk of life, but 
must manifest itself so much more in football when, like you say, suddenly you've got 60,000 people watching you. Yeah, you do start doubting yourself. But I'm sure there's any walk of life people have it at some point. It's just maybe with football, it's magnified more. Yeah. Um, and I didn't have the tools at the time to deal with it. Hmm. So maybe I did isolate a bit or I don't know. But I'd, I'd, I'd handle it differently now because I've got the tools. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. And, you know, you'd also started earning some decent money, you know, not the kind of dough that people now are trousering, obviously, but, you know, you would still have been earning significantly. And you were a young lad. Were you still going out with your mates like teenagers and lads do? Were you trying to maintain that kind of I'm one of the lads persona? Um, well, with me going away to Lillishaw, I sort of lost touch with a lot of friends who I spent to school with. So if I was socialising, it'd just be with the lads at Everton anyway. Hmm. Um, but at first, no, I didn't socialise that much. My dad was on, kept, kept my feet on the ground and made sure I wasn't going out and that. Uh, so, as I said, bought our family the first car with my first contract and then when I turned 18, my mum made me go and buy my own house. So, yeah, it was sensible at yep. the time. <laughs> didn't last all my life, but... <laughs> And I wanted to ask you about the mental stress of injuries as well, uh, because do you think do you think a real turning point was when you were going to be brought back brought in for that Boxing Day game against Manchester United, nineteen ninety seven? I think Howard Kendall was in charge. Is that when you Joe got Royal. Injured? Joe Royal was still in charge? Yeah. Is that when you were injured in the build up to the game? Yeah, so I'd always struggled with my hamstrings. I mean, because I was pretty quick. I'd always struggle with my hamstring, so I'd, I'd tweak an hamstring every couple of months and then keep me out for, say, 10 days, two weeks. So I had to run in the team, then I'd lose it, I had no momentum. And then I was just coming back from another hamstring, and we were playing uh, Man United at home, I think it was, on Boxing Day, so Joe Royals come to me. I think he come to me like 23rd, 22nd or 23rd and say, how's the hamstring? I'm like, yeah, it's good. I'm, I joined in today. It's good. He said, okay. He said, I want you to start against my new on Boxing Day. I'm like, brilliant. He said, you haven't played for a couple of weeks, so I'll do it. I'll get it behind doors, close game. Just give us 60 minutes. I was like, okay. So that was Christmas Eve. So they brought Trammy a youth team over. So I played for like our youth team because I'm still only youth anyway. So I uh, started and then like nine minutes into the game, this kid's just gone right over the top of the ball and just like, on purpose, it was definitely deliberate and uh, shattered my ankle. So that was me then. Uh, at first, I, I didn't think it was too bad, so I tried to walk off on it and like, it was just, then Granty was watching me come on, help me off and we went to the hospital and, yeah, it was it broke my ankle, so that was me done then for a while, long time. And do you think that Tranmere lad, who's we won't name, well, we don't probably don't know his name, but I mean, do you think that was jealousy? Because you obviously get that as lower league players, not not having made it. Um, I mean, whether he's just trying to be tough and just like, oh, so we can talk about it to the lads and the changes after it or that. It's just, he was just young and he's made a choice, which looking back, he probably wasn't proud of, but, mm. you know, one of those things. Yeah. So you knew you'd be out for a long time. 
how difficult is it from a mental and psychological point of view, knowing that you've got to do that lonely rehab? Because this would have been oh, the first really serious one you'd have had, presumably. Yeah, this was the first serious one. I remember, uh, I remember being around the club in sort of January, and I was in that bad mood, and I was like, this video said I was that bad around with me mood and all that. He like spoke to the gaff, and the gaff was like, "Go away, like take two weeks off, go on holiday. We don't want you around the club." <laughs> Because I was just probably moping around, feeling sorry for myself. Uh, so me and my girlfriend, we went away. And yeah, then come back. And it was a long struggle. It was, was long. And, and then you see other lads who sort of are behind you now are sort of in front of you or catching you up. Like, uh, what was his name? Daniel Kadamatri. Mm. Yeah. And Franny, you know, Franny Jeffers, and you're like, oh, then you, your head's going again, then will you, what's going to happen? And Yeah. So, I mean, people think, see all the, just all the good side of football, but literally it's, it's up and down, and there's that many variables that go on. It's forever just like trying to work stuff out or seeing where you are day to day. Yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those, isn't it? You know, people don't, it appreciate or refuse to recognize the word luck as well you know particularly the people who've had so, lots of lucky breaks you know yeah. they, they don't tend to acknowledge it no i mean that's that's first home game against chef webb i always think when they hit the bar if that had just gone in mm. i would have scored in my first full start so would that have given me more not confidence but would that have lifted the pressure a bit on scoring then I wouldn't have that wasn't always in the back of my mind because I've already scored then you know what I mean exactly yeah so how long did it take you to come back then I think it was almost a year because I was in plaster for a long time but even when I come out of plaster I couldn't kick a ball or that so but was it a case of you were ready at 10 months or were you still psychologically thinking crikey I'm not sure about going into tackles. I'm not sure if I've still got that yard of pace. Um, I mean, the biggest one was the, the going in for the tackle. Hmm. Uh, I never thought then I'd, I'd lose my pace because I knew I wouldn't. It was just, would it, would it uh, withstand a good tackle? So for a long time, I could run and move on it. It was just, I was, we were worried about joining in. So... Hmm or kicking a ball because it had no strength in it. So for a long time, I'd be training with the physio and I'd just use my left foot. So the one thing that happened with then, I then become two-footed because my left foot, I could only use that for months and months. So it becomes just as natural as my uh, right in the end. Yeah. So the fir first training session, I thought, I'm just going to have to test it. Just went in like for a 50-50. Just I, I didn't want to be um and ah and just let's get it over and done with it. If it's not strong enough, we'll know about it after this. But lucky enough, it was okay, so and I've never ever suffered from it before, after, sorry. Right. But the rehab must have been good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but there was a lot of changes at the club at the time, weren't there? I think by the time you came back, would Walter Smith have been in charge? No, it's all that long ago now. <laughs> uh, I don't know, and it's all a bit of a blur. Uh, but yeah, when Walter Smith came in, that's when it all changed for me, sort of thing. Well, sometimes managers just don't fancy a player, do they? Yeah, yeah, right, that's it. It's like, you can't take it personal. It's just, you don't fancy it. So, okay, it's just one person's opinion mm. or two. Uh, so, 
remember being away. I don't know what year it was, but we were doing a pre-season in uh, Italy, I think it was, and he called me in like day two into it and said, Portsmouth want to sign you. I think Portsmouth were in the Premiership at the time, and so I had to fly back and have a meeting with Alan Ball. So we uh, sat down, but we just couldn't come to terms, couldn't agree terms. So uh, I come back and that was it really that he was sort of, I did inform because I come back. <laughs> right. So. so those sort of incidents, do they make you think more negatively about football? Do, you must have been thinking, I'm just a factor of production, I'm a piece of meat. Yeah, I mean, by this time I'm not enjoying football, you know what I mean? I'm like, I could take it or leave it. Hmm. it it's not. It wasn't giving me the same buzz. And it was probably because I wasn't playing every week and I wasn't scoring every week. And, but I could have taken or left it by then. At 21, I phoned the PFA up and was going was gonna to stop playing mm. uh, and become an accountant. But I got talked into just keep going for a bit longer. But it was my head as well. I wasn't in mentally in a good place. And, but did you, were you explaining this to the PFA? I mean, it is 20 years ago and we, we keep, yeah. you, you know, attitudes and mental health, et cetera, were so, so different. But your you, alarm bells must have rang in PFA headquarters when a 21-year-old lad who's playing in the Premier League is saying, I don't like football to such an extent I want to be an accountant. Yeah, I mean, and the PFA have been brilliant with me. I would never say a bad thing about the PFA before. Whenever I've needed help or that, they've been there and they've always been at the end of a phone. Maybe it'll, uh, I still think back then it, it wasn't as much as in the spotlights as it is now, the mental health, and maybe they just thought it was just, I just had a bad week. <laughs> but it had, been yeah. build, it had been building up for a while, hadn't it? And yeah, I think it was a lot of it from uh, childhood as well, the pressures from childhood of being so good, so young, and just constant pressure of every game, people are expecting you to do well. Yeah. And expecting you to score and expecting you to be the best player. And for a long time I was, but then when it doesn't happen, how do you deal with it? Because you've never been taught and you never come across it before. Yeah. yeah. So... so Bearing that in mind, where was your head at then in April 1999, your final Everton game, a Merseyside derby of all things? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I started that game. I hadn't played for like months and months. And then was Walter Smith still in charge then? And I think he just put me in. I was like, that's a bit of a shock. Starting. And... To be fair, the nightmare of the game when we got dragged and all that. But yeah, and I remember the final game thinking, what the hell? Where did that, what happened there? Yeah. So, yeah. I yeah. didn't realise at the time it'd been the last game for Everton, but yeah, you're right, it was Derby at Anfield. Yeah, yeah. But then it yeah. seemed like those little loan spells, particularly at Wolves, might have reinvigorated you. So it, was did. it did at Wolves for a bit because I went to score two on my debut against Man City live on Sky uh, and I was doing well but Wolves and I enjoyed it for a bit yeah. I was enjoying it at Wolves I really was and then Conlon Lee got sacked who took me to Wolves and Dave Jane, Dave Jones come in and uh, I mean Dave Jones just didn't see eye to eye sort of thing I mean it's a, it's a weird one that I thought when I first started looking at your Wolves 
career. I just assumed that it was Dave Jones who brought you in, being an ex-Evertonian as well. But yeah, it was Colin no, Lee, wasn't it? So what, yeah. what went wrong with you and Dave Jones then? I'm not sure. I was playing. I was playing right wing, and then I, I was hopeful for a new contract. He said he was going to speak to me uh, agent over the summer. Then I was on holiday, and I seen he bought Sean Newton for like a few million to play right wing, and I'm like, well, I'm playing there. What's going on? So then I was like, come back pre-season, and just sort of got frozen out. And I probably didn't handle myself the best then. Um, I was probably. But just I don't know, probably yeah, just didn't handle myself best in training and after that. Mm. So that in was what just, way? And probably my attitude mm. because the way I've been treated by him, so I wasn't giving me all in training, which wasn't right. And it's difficult though when you've been let down by anyone in life, and you must have yeah. felt you've been let down by a manager who told you one thing and then done the other. Yeah, and then when someone wants you out the club and you know, you're not wanted then you're training by yourself. You're not gonna you're not gonna have the greatest attitude in the world. Mm. But again, so, it's something I look back on and learn by and something I'm not proud of, but at the time it happened. I was still only young at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, were you thinking even then, you know, you were struggling with your love for football, were you thinking, well, if I take a step back maybe that can give me a springboard to enjoy it again and then propel me back up the leagues. Were you thinking that, especially when No, you're... I think I think now I'm thinking I'm just dropping down now. I'm thinking mm. that's it, sort of. It's just coming to an end. I peaked when it was like 15 or something. Right. And I was just dropping down. So... Even at Chester with Ian Rush, there was no scout no, banter no. and getting you going again? No, there was banter. I mean, I remember one time I was injured again with my hamstring, and I was on the, uh, I was on the treatment table, and the lads were all coming back in from training. They were saying, "Oh, the gaffer joined in today. You should have seen him. He was on fire. He was like banging goals in everywhere." And then he come in and see me. He said, "Branchy said, should have seen me today. I was on fire." He said it was just like playing against Everton. I was putting them in left, right, and centre. Just what you needed to hear from someone who must have been about 50, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So do you remember your last professional appearance, March 2006? No. <laughs> was that just the final straw? Because I think you just called the club, didn't you, and said that that's enough? Yeah, I just called for the chairman of Chester one day and was like, that's it, I'm not, I can't do this no more. Yeah. Uh, obviously, looking back then, I wasn't in a good place mentally, you know what I mean? But... At the time, I, I didn't realise how bad I was, but I just couldn't do it no more. Yeah, yeah. But then I didn't know what I was going to do either. Well, yeah, and you ended up going to Australia, didn't you? Was there a plan when you went to Oz? So I'd done, uh, I'd done my level UEFA B coaching, and when I was on there, I bumped into an Australian on there who used to play for Chef Wed, and we got on really well. And he was like, why don't you come out? He said, I've got my own little business. Come out, see, see if you like it. So me and the family uh, went out for a holiday, six-week holiday, ended up staying two years. <laughs> so uh, that was good. I enjoyed it out there. And then we had to, our visa had run out because we'd just done a two-year visa. So we said, we'll come back and we'll do it properly and then go move everything and live out there properly, go for citizenship. And uh, 
obviously it didn't work out. But Australia's good. Less, I was just literally less pressure. I was coaching a lot. The team we had was just semi-pro. It was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why did you not regroup uh, briefly in the UK and then go back to Oz? Because we didn't score enough points, so we needed a qualification to score more points to go back. So just my qualification as a coaching didn't entitle me to score enough points. So I was starting my accountancy course then to become an accountant to then, within like two years, be able to score enough points to go. Right, I'm with you. So when you came home then, we, was your financial situation okay? You were able to start again or...? Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, we, had, we were okay. We had a few houses that had gone in a bit of trouble while we were away due to the fact that the, the, we had them with the letting agency and the letting agency had uh, gone bust with some of our mortgage deposits off the tenants. So that was a bit of a mess that we had to sort out. So, yeah, it was tough. Right. And is this the reason why things started to drift and you started drifting into this into the sort of crime scene well, i mean at the time it was the houses everything then the houses were getting repossessed and it was just a lot of things going on and i didn't have a job and i had a family to provide for they were threatening to take the roof from off, over my kids heads so yeah so it was a case of pressure 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 was building and building and building so how did it come about then? What was this kind of initial introduction for getting involved with drugs? I think it's just football and drugs go, not go hand in hand as in taking it, but a lot of drug dealers are big football fans. So when you're in them circles in clubs, yeah, introduced or you speak to each other and you sort of know, and it's just, it's just like that. It's just through literally being out and being known and that's it. So, um, for a long time, they were just friends, you know what I mean? And then, obviously, people see you struggling and they offer you a little bit of help. Well, it's what they think is help. So, they kind of preyed on your vulnerability. And were you thinking, if I just do a couple of deals and get out, then I can change things? Yeah, exactly. It wasn't something I wanted to do long term. It was something, it was a necessity. Uh, things were in a bad, I was in a bad place, you know what I mean, mentally and everything. And you make choices, I'm not proud of it, but unless you're in that, in that situation, no one knows what you're capable of. Would I do it again? Hell no, but mm. at the time, with, the, with what I knew, I made the choice and it was a bad choice and I, I uh, paid for it, which rightly so. Mm. Can yeah. you... Can you describe the moment you were arrested? Yeah, I dropped the kids off at school and I pulled on the driveway and a car pulled and uh, blocked me in and I didn't recognise him. And then I got out, I said, are you, are you Michael? I'm like, yeah. And then he said, you're under arrest. And he looked at me, I looked at him and he, th he must have seen in my eyes. And he said, and he was like, please don't run. He wouldn't have caught me, but um, <laughs> I was like, no. And you know what? It was a big relief. It was like, mm. even though I was like, what the hell? So then we got in the, in the police car and we drive driving to the uh, police station and I just felt a relief that it was over. 
Mm. I know it's like you see on films and all that, you know, people say, but it literally was a relief. Mm. It's like, thank God that life is over. Because I wasn't cut out for it. I wasn't supposed to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even the policeman said, he said, do you know how much trouble you're in? And I was like, yeah. He said, well, why are you so calm? And I was just, I didn't answer him, but I just knew because it was over. Mm. But um, I thought it'd, it'd be a couple of years, maybe, I guess. Yeah. And that'd be, in the end, I got seven, which was a bit of a shock. But you know what? You do, you do a crime, you've got to pay the tax. Yeah. W- so, were you remanded straight to prison, or did, were you able to go home for a bit? No, I was remanded straight to prison, which, in hindsight, was probably a good thing. Mm. It was just sort of get on with it. Yeah. Um, I thought I'd get bail, but the judge said no, and I just got remanded. And how do you prepare yourself for, for doing time? And because you, you obviously didn't have a long time to prepare for that if you, if you went straight there. No, you had no time. It's just first time I've been arrested. And uh, so I had to hit the ground running. Mm. First night was we got there and we got put in our cells when it was already locked down, so it was late. So. The first night, I was in with someone who else was there first night, so then when the doors opened in the morning, it was like, what's this going to be? Yeah. I just put out the door and it was like, wow, I can't handle this. Just like 150 kids running around, you know what I mean? I bet it was mayhem, wasn't it? Noise. Yeah, it was just, it was just crazy. It was just like, no, it was like, it was like when you're at school and it's lunchtime or playtime and they, they open the yard and you're all run out. And it was like that in the morning, just, I was like, I can't handle this, but you got it. Just got to get on with it. But where do you find that inner resolve? Because you know, I'm I'm fascinated by crime and forensics and detective work. Yeah. It's my it's my worst nightmare, and it must have been yours as well. But where do you get that mental resolve from? I'd like to think I'd be able to find it within myself. But where did you get it? Well, I mean, at first it was hard, but. Up until a certain point, I wasn't sure my sentence was I. Mm. So I hadn't been sentenced, so I was still in a crazy little head of mine. I was still hopeful that I might just get a suspended sentence or something, so I'm kidding myself. So I think it was about four months that I got sentenced, and then I got seven years, and I was like, no, this isn't right, you know what I mean? This just isn't right. Mm. So then I was in a bad place, I'll be honest with you, I was in a real bad place, and yeah. I was like, how am I going to do this? I've got to do at least three and a half years away from the wife and the kids. Mm. And one of the gym staff, because I was working in the gym, must have seen how low I was. And he said, would you see a counsellor? So I went and seen a counsellor for the first time. Wow. And uh, this this lady, she was amazing. She probably saved my life, if I'm honest. Um, She just got me thinking different. And it was like, either you can mope around and feel sorry for yourself for three and a half years which but not is going to change because you'll still be here or you can be here and get on with it and not fight fight everything like you know you shouldn't be here poor old you so i just changed my mindset and it's like i'm here now what do i do nothing's changing that's mm. so i've become the fittest i could i got me accountancy stuff sent in by the pfa so i just study and work out and see the kids and that was it mm. It's got me head down, 
helped out, helped the other lads with the maths and English. And it's just, it was just changing my mindset in my head. Otherwise, if I hadn't had them constant sessions, I don't know what would have happened. Well, it reminds me of that Don King quote. Don King, when he got sentenced for manslaughter, I think he said, don't serve prison time, let prison time serve you. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Never heard that, but that sounds about right. Mm. I mean, I couldn't go in there and you see some of the lads just playing Playstations all day and um, mm. not wanting to do anything. It was, I've got this time, now let's use it to the best of my ability. Mm. Mm. And then, yeah. So it went quite quick in the end. I'd, I'd play football every week. I remember going on wing one time. and It's a long story, but I'm Chris and Paul, Michael Branch, so all legal stuff's Paul, Paul Branch. And uh, I went on the wing and everyone knew me as Paul and just keep me head down and no one recognised me. And this, this lad from Warrington said, you're only good at footy. We've got, a, we've got a, a match this afternoon against another wing. Do you want a game? I'm like, no, I'll leave it, you know, oh, aren't you the best? No, I was like, no, I'm not the best, you know, just leave it. <laughs> but I didn't want to play straight away. But in the end, I used to play every week. And obviously, you must, I'm presuming you went to Walton Prison then? No, I went to Old Course. Oh, okay, so if you'd have gone to Walton, I remember speaking to Mark Ward after he released his yes. book, Right Wing to B Wing. I remember him yes. saying, the first thing I thought was what a dickhead I've been, but he went yeah. to Walton, didn't he? And he said he saw a lot of his old mates. So you weren't in that same situation then, no? Um, well, of course, it's still a Liverpool prison. Hmm. It's just uh, run by G4S instead of HMP. Hmm. So there was there was some people in there who recognised me. Um, there was a prison guard, a couple of prison guards who, one of them was actually a white here at with me. Uh, so that was a bit of a shock <laughs> for him to see me. Yeah. Yeah, but I got treated good and they're as good as you can be. Yeah. Uh, I can't complain. There was no uh, bullying or that. Or... No, I just got, got, kept my head down and just got on with it. Because I imagine you saw a, a wider cross-section of people in the prison system than what you maybe anticipated, did you? Yeah, I mean, it's like... There's people from all walks of life and from all over the country, even from not from this country, but we had murderers on our wings and mm. I didn't ever think I'd be living with murderers, you know what I mean? But they seemed normal, if that makes sense, even though they're not, they wasn't, but yeah. I think once you're in there, it's not about sort of, it's just everyone sort of gets on with it. Yeah. It's, yeah. But it's just, but you see the ones who are saying, oh, I've got another big sentence in me. I'm like, how have you got another big sentence in you? I haven't got another like little sentence in me, never mind a big one. Once I'm out of here, I'm done. Yeah. Like a mistake, but like a couple of lads on the second, second, seven or eight years, I've got one more of these left in me. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> how is that possible? What's so, the end game, you know? Yeah. Exactly, and you feel sorry for them, you know what I mean? And, but, I mean, it's not, it's not a nice place to be. But as long as you keep your head down and keep yourself to yourself. And was it, was, was it thanks to that counsellor that you were able to get the mental fortitude together to start that accountancy again? Or? Yeah, and it was just... So instead of waking up every day thinking, oh, I've got so long to go and I've got, uh, I shouldn't be here, 
that Joe only done this because I played football and it was just like, it is what it is. What are we going to do today? What's the best we can do today? Just keep it in the day and that day, keep yourself busy. Put your head on the pillar. You know, you've done all you could that day and then wake up the next day. Before you know it, you've done a year and then the next thing you know, you're at open prison and you're coming home. So. Yeah. But was there a natural negativity about someone trying to better themselves like you were with that accountancy course? Were you getting guards and inmates saying, what's the point in this? Oh, yeah. I mean, you get a lot of people like that. Sort of, uh, what are you doing that for? You're never going to get a job as an accountant. You're the criminal. They start the other off the guards. I was like, you know what? It's none of your problem. Don't you worry about it. I'll just crack on. Uh, so it bothers other people more than it bothers me, you know what I mean? It's like, I don't know why people don't want to see other people who are doing well or better in themselves. Hmm. Lucky enough, on one of my wings, there was a chartered accountant in there. So uh, if I got stuck on anything, I'd go and see him. <laughs> so that was a touch. <laughs> what was he in for? I'm thinking more white-collar crime. He was in for white-collar crime, yeah. Yeah, don't worry, he didn't teach me any of these, any of these bad stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we won't be give, we, you won't be putting him down as a reference. No, definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what was it like leaving prison that the day when the gates opened? Yeah, I mean, you look forward to that day. Uh, my dad come and got me and we drove back to Liverpool. It's surreal, really. Just, But by that time, I'd been coming home for like 12 months anyway. Okay. Every, every month for the weekend I'd get home late okay. and I got, I got a day release to go and work at Everton in, in the accountancy firm and accountancy firm associated with Everton. Oh fantastic, so Everton as a football club really helped even during that transitionary period when you were, you were still in the open prison system? Yeah, yeah, I mean uh, Henry Mooney at Everton in the community, he'd come and see me all the time. Mm. Uh, Everton were brilliant with me, they never ever turn the back on me. Mm. And the PFA, the PFA, oh shit, the PFA, he's coming and see me as well. Mm. Yeah, so um, he said I was a good guy, really deep down, just made a mistake, which we all make one mistake. If you make it twice, then you're stupid. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a solid mantra, isn't it? Yeah. So, so, what was the plan then when you left? Was it with the accountancy firm and with Everton? And how prepared did you feel for building a, a new life? So, I heard that you secured an accountancy job before I got released. So, when I got released, I, I think I got released the same Thursday and then the following Monday, I started in the new accountancy position. So, at that time, it was nothing. I, I was just doing bits with Everton, nothing major. Mm. So, for a couple of years, it was just the accountancy. And then uh, the accountancy firm was, we weren't getting that much work. So my hours got caught and my days got caught. So I was down to like two and a half days a week, which I couldn't survive on. So then a job come up at uh, Everton. So I went for that and I'm still there. So that's the thing. But I'm still doing my studying for my accountancy because I'm still not completely qualified yet. Mm. Uh, I had an exam last week. So to find out how I got on in that results in the next six weeks right oh good stuff so yeah what was the initial job title that you went for at Everton and because I'm presuming the role has, has kind of changed and 
And did you get it straight away? Because you had to submit your CV still, didn't you? It wasn't as if you. Yeah, were... I mean, the first, the first job I went for, I didn't get. I never. Uh, I had to submit my CV, and because like anyone else, I'm the one special. It's why should I? Have, why should I have to do what anyone else has to do? Hmm. So, yeah, the first job I went for, I didn't get, and then another opportunity come up a few a few months later. So I went for that one and got it, and it's just a support slash mentor worker. Hmm. So. We help young people who maybe not not in education or are going down the wrong path, maybe are on the cusp of committing crime, and we just get them in a couple of days a week. We chat with them, we do activities with them, just talk to them really, to try and get to the bottom of where they are and what they're thinking, mm. just try and change their thinking a little bit. It's rewarding. It's hard. You know what I mean? Really hard at times, especially with these kids in Liverpool, mm. but. Uh, you get the odd one and they come back and you see they've turned the lives around it's worth it mm. it really is so and then since then I, I was pushing for us to go a little bit higher in age and to help people who were just coming out of prison like young adults mm. so we've just started a new, a new project now with that so it's all exciting times. It's all a bit new to me, but I think with my experience and sort of once you know to play football and you can sort of see it sort of breaks down some barriers. Mm. And then they know I've gone through prison, I've played football, I've gone through prison, now I'm back in a job working and it's, I feel as though I can get through to them. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it sounds like you went into a role and then you were able to use your experience to develop that role, but also develop what the club as a whole have been doing. Yeah, I mean, like, Sue Gregory, I love it in the community, our, our boss, she's, like, amazing the work she does. Like, our community work is, like, off the scale. And she's open to us with our suggestions. So it was like, yes, start like this, but we'll see where you go. So at first I had a little couple of weeks on different projects to see where I liked and what fitted me the best. It wasn't sort of this is your job. So I realised it was it was like older teens who are on who are in trouble with the police or are about to be in trouble or being flagged up and just speaking to them, I think I'm quite good at get not the building the trust and then getting to know what what, what the what what the underlying factors are, why they why they like this, and mm. why they're doing it. A lot of it's macho stuff, or they're just misunderstood. I mean, they just haven't talked to anyone, or no one's ever spoke to them properly. And, mm. Yeah. Can you but, remember your Can you remember your first kind of interaction? Because it must have been quite daunting. All of a sudden, you've got a job at Everton again, and you're being tasked with doing this. Do you remember? Yeah, I remember, I remember one first time. It was funny. We we took them canoeing. And these were about seven or eight of them, say, 16, 17-year-olds, maybe a bit younger, 15, 15 to 17. Um, so it's my first day with them. So we've got like three staff and I'm pushing, uh, I'm pushing uh, one of them canoes in. And I've got trainees on, there's a bit of moss and I went flying up in the air and landed like in the water. Like, not fully in the water, but my backside and my legs, and I'm like, and they're all laughing at me, and they're all like, ah, and they're like saying, ah, you're effing this, yeah, and because like, they don't know me, I'm like, what's he saying? Who's he calling that? Like, 
what, what's going on here? I wouldn't let anyone call me that normally. And I was like, then I had to pull one of the lads and say, what you do when they say that to you? And he said, you just got to laugh it off, you know what I mean? I was like, oh, it was a shock. But it was good. And then once we got to know them, we, we laughed about it, you know what I mean? But yeah, it was like, <laughs> they were doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a very different mindset, isn't it? I've transitioned a couple of years ago from journalism and TV presenting to lecturing. And it's so different because you think you're delivering what is right, but then from their perspective, it, it, it could be completely different. So that's what I meant about it being daunting. I mean, have you been in those kind of classroom situations as well where you've got to present for the first time? Yeah, I mean, I'm getting used to it. I'm getting better at it. Hmm. It was tough at first. I still... Uh, if I have a chance, I'll back out of them and let someone else do it. But I need to get out my comfort zone and start doing them. Yeah. First time's going into the prisons, because we go into the prisons as well. Uh, sort of. So, of course, I was there for two years. Now I'll go back there hmm. uh, with everything in the community. Tell us more about this, um, this initiative, the prison initiative. So you came up with the idea, didn't you? I didn't come up with it. It was just we wanted to do more. We were already doing stuff with the young offenders but we were hopeful to try and get in more into the what and into old course with the older lads mm. so after speaking as a group uh, we decided we'd give it a go and it's only just started and then lockdown kicked in so we haven't had a real chance to get it up and going but the other one we do is the twinning project so every premier league club is twinned with a prison a local prison mm. we go in and then we do a, a programme for 12 weeks. So we'll go in, coach, do football sessions with, say, up to 22 of them every week. And then on the 12th week, we'll take our staff team in to play them. So we we'll, we only managed to get one of them in through uh, before lockdown. So that was good. The game finished 4-4. So it was a good game. There was no bad tackles. So a few yeah, yeah, I should have gone a few more, believe me, jeez. Felt the pressure even playing there. <laughs> but a few of the lads were a bit nervous going in, but we were like, because we trained the lads every week, we were like, they're good lads, you know what I mean? So, hmm. yeah, it was good. So you're training the lads, and it's football-based, but is the mentoring stuff that you do with them as well? Well, the first, the first one was just football, just to get people involved, but we're then gonna, it's going to be some classroom-based stuff, stuff as well. So helping them with skills that will help them once they get released. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm hugely passionate about the prison system should be rehabilitation focused and education focused because obviously not, not yourself, but the vast majority of people are, are people who've not had uh, chances in life, they've not had qualifications. So we're in danger of just, well, we are, we're just throwing people back onto the streets with nothing in their locker to prepare them for, for going straight. So you must be equally passionate, if not more so. Are, are, there any, are there any things you'd like to see implemented? No, well, that's it. There's no point in being in prison and then we, they get out and they don't have somewhere to live, they don't have a job. What are you going to do if they've got nowhere to live, no, no job, if they're going to go straight back to crime? Because mm. people need money, it's... They've got to have the opportunities, the job opportunities. So while they're in there, we need to give them the skills so when they do come out, they can apply for jobs. And not just little courses that are no good to anyone. Because 
I don't know how many courses you can do in there, but they're not going to help them when they come out. What like, kind of courses, Michael? All different ones. Uh, I, obviously, there's ones you have to do, uh, victim impact ones, but there's courses. I didn't do any of them because I was studying, but I mean, okay, there's somewhere you can maybe do level one refereeing now. Okay, but how many of them are going to be allowed to be with children because of the criminal records? Or it's not going to help them get a job. They're not going to be able to. That's not going to be able to support them. So let's let's get them the CSCS cards. Let's get them so they can go on a building site. Let's learn them how to use machinery. The plant machinery when they're in the open prisons. So then when they come out, they've got them cards and them tickets to then go and apply for jobs. Just like computing courses, I mean, okay, the majority of them, but I mean, a lot of them are gonna go and get a job where they're sitting behind the desk. Mm. It's just hard, and don't get me wrong, a lot of them don't wanna, don't wanna do education or that, that's the biggest thing. Mm. But the ones that do should have an opportunity to not do what they want, but to have a good, a good variety of courses to do. Mm. Because when a lot of them what we speak to when they get released is the first thing they want to do is they need the CSCS card to go and work on a building site because they know they can get a job on a building site. Mm. And then we have to sort the CS. So as ever in the community, we will get them the CS, CS, CSCS card sorted. But they should be done in prison so they're good to go as soon as they get out. Mm. I totally agree. There's that realistic vocational angle that you've talked about is absolutely bang on the money. But then I suppose that there are going to be bright kids in the prison system who, who want to learn, but might feel intimidated by a kind of gang culture in prison. Yeah, I mean, if you're not strong enough mm. to, to, to say to them, no, this is what I'm going to do. I mean, I didn't have gangs as such, but there was people who were like, what are you doing that for? Like, I'd come in and come on, do you want to game of table tennis or do you want to, do you want to game of snooker? I'm like, no, I'm studying. I'm like, you've been studying all day? I was like, I know, but like, I'm a big one for routine, so I give them set times where I'm studying and then that's it, I'm studying. Mm. And if you're not strong enough and you crack or you fall under pressure, then yeah. But I think it's also the wings you go on. So we, I went on a wing where it was a bit older and it wasn't young kids running around. and. Mm. So um, there is the opportunities you can do open open university there while you're away. Yeah, yeah. So there's a few doing that, but it's just it's just it's just as you say, giving them that opportunity, giving them the skills, so when they come out, they've got a chance. Yeah, they've got a chance at least. But then I suppose you've also got to take the stigma out of, you know, someone having served time in prison when it comes to employers and employability. So. Does there need to be some more kind of joined up thinking there? And how do you get rid of that stigma, I suppose? Yeah, that's it. I mean, we, did, we, we went to a conference at HMP Walton and that was about employability and about giving them a chance. Because it, it is hard, I mean, the stigma, but you've mm. got to just keep going. And we have some partners at Everton that we work with and they're good, mm. taking them on. So... It, it is hard, and but you've just got to be willing to keep going at it and keep keep going. And if you get a few knockbacks, it can't set them back too much. 
and yeah. that's where they were there for them. So when they do get them knockbacks, they can maybe phone us and listen, feeling a bit down and this, that and the other. And we can catch up with them, go for the coffee and talk them through the process of what they're thinking and just mm. so they don't make them wrong choices like a rash decision or I'm not gonna get a job and why is it going to do this? Mm. If, if someone was there just to change their thinking just at that point, then maybe they won't go and do that armed robbery or they won't do that robbery. Yeah. yeah, so that's 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 what we want to do, to stop them committing them crimes and yeah. giving them a chance because prison isn't nice and they've got families and it's the impact on everything, like the impact they had on my kids, it's unbelievable. So I'm, I'm with a charity now called Time Matters and it's for children who have got parents who are in prison, so how it affects the children. So we look after the children, make sure they can get counselling or talk to people. Yeah, they shouldn't suffer just because they're their parents in prison. Yeah, or how they deal with it at school and that. Yeah. Just don't realise how much effect it has on everyone. Um, so the more we can educate people about it, the better. Yeah, yeah, that must yeah. have been heartbreaking. You know, thinking about the impact on others, but hopefully everyone's come out of the other side. And you certainly seem like you're bang on track. You know, what, what's next for you? Are there, do you set yourself big goals, like long-term goals, or is everything fairly short-term? Fairly short-term. I like to keep stuff in the day. No, not go think too far ahead. If I think too far ahead, my head will go. If I think back in the future, my head will go. So mm. I just try to keep it, keep it quite present. We've got a few ideas going forward, some mentoring, maybe counselling stuff. But at the minute, just... Finish me accountant, keep doing me work at Everton and be the best dad I can now. Yeah. Yeah. Very wise words. I think it's a really inspirational story and you should be really proud of yourself, Michael. It's been a, a pleasure talking to you. No, I appreciate it. It's been good talking to you and thanks for the opportunity to tell my story. The Phoenix Sport and Media Group provide honest and trustworthy professional advice and business solutions to the sports and media industry. For more information, visit www.psm-group.co.uk.